You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. In the field of medical research, there is a procedure that is used to test the effectiveness of a medicine or a treatment. What researchers do is they gather a group of people to test, and some of those people are given a true medical treatment, while others are given a false medical treatment called a placebo. A placebo is something like a sugar pill that actually has no medicinal power. But when their research is concluded, the researchers measure the test results between those who took the placebo and those who took the real medicine, allowing them to determine the effectiveness of the medication. Now, the interesting thing is that some of the people who take a placebo, they will actually have a bit of improvement in their emotional stability. They may feel like they are being healed and they gain an improved mental outlook on their condition. There can be minor therapeutic improvements in their life. They may grow more optimistic about their health outcome, but in reality, they've only taken a sugar pill. It's all in their head. This is known as the placebo effect. The person has simply been fooled into thinking positively about their situation. The sugar pill itself doesn't have any healing power to address the real sickness or condition that they have. Those who are given a placebo can be utterly convinced that they have been given something that will heal their condition. But we all know that mere positive thinking is not enough to deal with the deepest root issues of a serious medical condition. Serious medical conditions cannot be addressed by a sugar pill. Now, in Western culture, many people, many of our neighbors and co-workers and friends are under a spiritual placebo effect. They recognize that they are not altogether well. They recognize that things are not altogether healthy in their lives, like that, that they're not whole. So they looked at different directions for healing. Our neighbors turned to friends, family, neighbors, mental health professionals, money, success, education, romantic relationships, and alternative spiritualities for healing. And all of these things have the potential to give a temporary sense of well-being. They all have the potential to give us some small therapeutic benefit to maybe make us a little bit more positive about the hard things in our lives or or the, the things in our lives that are not quite in place. It may make them feel a little better or even a lot better temporarily, but the deepest root issues of their lives remain unresolved. They are still in need of true healing, deep healing, lasting healing. In our text for today, the Apostle John gives us a window into one of the central themes of the Christian faith, healing, healing. In this passage, Jesus Christ is revealed 
as the great physician, one who is uniquely capable of giving us true healing. And this picture comes into view through Jesus' encounter with a paraplegic man at the pool of Bethesda. And and we're going to look at two ideas this morning as we approach this text. We're going to approach this text through two points where we see we need to perceive healing myths and we need to receive healing mercy. We need to perceive healing myths out there that are on offer and we need to receive healing mercy from the Lord Jesus. So let's look at our first point, perceiving healing myths. Now, When we set the context of our passage for this morning, just before this in John chapter 4, there is an official who comes to Jesus for healing for his child. This man is powerful. He's influential. And he comes to Jesus and Jesus speaks the word of healing from a distance. And when the man gets back home, he finds that his child is restored. And when he asks when it happened, it was at the very time that Jesus spoke the word of healing from a distance. But in our text for today, we get, we get a different picture because we move from a powerful, influential man to a man who is absolutely on the margins, completely riddled with pain, broken, despairing. And what we see is that in the Gospel of John, this theme continues of For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, whoever. He's continuing that theme of the whoever. It's a different situation that we come into here in chapter 5. In verse chapter 2 of the text, if you take a look, we are told that this scene unfolds at the pool of Bethesda. Bethesda means house of mercy. People came to this pool in search of mercy and healing. And they fixed their hopes on Bethesda. They were under the impression that Bethesda could turn their lives around. And verse 3 says that there was a great number of sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed people. A mass number of people who were all convinced that their only hope for healing was found in that pool. You wouldn't have found any upper-class people gathering there because this was a place for the desperate. And the rich and well-off and the well-healed would not have wanted to become ceremonially unclean by coming into contact with these people. But Jesus enters in. Because here's the thing. Jesus isn't worried about contracting their sickness. He is concerned with imparting his health. That's why he enters in. And what I want you to understand is that our life in this world is a microcosm of Bethesda. We look around and see people with sickness and brokenness and disease. And it doesn't just begin and start at the physical level. Our brokenness goes deeper. Our desperation goes deeper. We, too, are in desperate need of healing. And what we see is that Jesus is the type of Savior who goes looking for the sick and broken. Now, if you look at your bulletin, you may think that Sister Ashley made a typo because verse 4 is missing. But that's not Sister Ashley. This is a simple 
principle of what is known as textual criticism. Somebody say textual criticism. All right, this is the discipline by which scholars compare the various manuscripts of the New Testament and the Old Testament, and they make sure that the, the, the scriptures as they are inscripturated have their very best manuscripts because there were times where scribes would feel the temptation to fill it in just to make sense of it. And what, what we realize is that the best Greek manuscripts do not include verse 4. And it seems like a scribe inserted this explanation to let us know about what Bethesda was. And what, what we learn, and it's corroborated by verse 7 if you take a look, is that Bethesda was understood to have healing power because they believed that every occasion, every once in a while, that an angel would go in and stir the water up and that it would then be able to heal the first person who got into that pool. What they didn't realize at the time is that there was a deep aqueduct underneath that would release air sometimes and it would start to bubble. And so they came up with this explanation that it was an angel stirring the water. So that's why they all fixed their hopes for healing on this pool. But it was a myth of the culture, y'all. You had to be first in the water. And some of us here have never been first at anything in our whole lives. According to this myth, you had to be first in order to get mercy. Now, think about it like this. There are more than 150 of us who gather in here every Sunday morning for, for worship. Now, imagine if it were the case that only one of us out of this whole group could get a blessing on that Sunday morning. And the only way was if you were first. You know what that would mean? It would mean this strange paradox where the house of mercy also became a house of disappointment. These people were crushed. And every time they weren't the person to get into the water, their despair grew. Their hopelessness grew. Their expectations for anything resembling health and flourishing and normalcy grew. They were hoping in a myth. And the reality is that Bethesda is like a lot of things in our lives. We'll grab anything to make it better. Just to get the pain to go away, to get the embarrassment or the guilt or the shame to go away, the bad feelings within. We buy into any number of healing myths that are an offer from our culture. We're so ready to hear it because we so deeply long for healing. Think about it. There's the myth of healing your sadness through sexual liberation. If I can really express my sexual freedom, then I can find happiness. There's the myth of healing your loneliness through the technology of social media. If I can just be in the know, if I can just project the right image, then I'll be accepted. But here's the thing, that always falls short because they're accepting a false version of you, not the real you. So it falls flat. It doesn't heal. There's the myth of healing your feelings of insignificance through academic achievement that leads to a successful career. Because if I'm somebody out there, they have to recognize me. They have to affirm me. Then that'll, that'll mean I am somebody valuable. Or if that ship has sailed, there's the myth of finding that healing through raising successful children. But what that turns into is parents who weigh on their children and berate them and give them these perfectionistic tendencies. And kids grow up to fight the same idols that their parents do. Maybe you look to the myth of healing and wholeness 
through improving your physical appearance, a new workout regimen, or a new diet. Maybe you're buying into the myth of healing through the professional class of doctors and therapists. Or maybe you're doing a DIY approach by taking some kind of combination of all of these things. We seek many remedies for our many ailments. And humanity has always hoped for healing and wholeness. But here's the thing. We search through the cultural medicine cabinet and we pull out a fistful of placebos. Nothing beyond a sugar pill that has no power to heal. We think this is where I'll find healing. This will make me whole. This will get me straightened out. But at the end of the day, each of these things, when they are standing alone, are nothing more than a placebo. A spiritually ineffective way of dealing with the root causes of our greatest pain, suffering, and dysfunction. They might make you feel better for a time, but when you put the culture's offerings under real scrutiny, when you approach them with critical thinking, you know that none of these things can bring you healing. How many times do we have to hear the story of the person who grew wealthy only to find out that they were just as empty at the top as they were at the bottom because that money couldn't do it? And you can run the gamut on that. You have to realize that these cultural mythologies of healing, these cultural mythologies of healing are just a temporary fix. But where do we go from here? Take a look at verse 5. Let's look at this man, right? This man has a long, lingering problem, right? He is a senior beggar, as it were. Because at this time, the life expectancy for a person in this, in this situation was about 40 years. The man is 38 years old, okay? So he has experienced 38 years of paralysis, 38 years of ostracism, 38 years of cynicism, 38 years of bitterness, 38 years of begging. The man is physically paralyzed, but his physical paralysis inevitably leads to a deeper paralysis in his life. Because there's a synthesis to our anthropology, who we are as human beings. When you're not right internally, as Pastor Joel said earlier, it comes out into your body. And when your body is not healthy, it affects your immaterial aspects. It's a, we're a, a body-soul nexus, material and immaterial. It's mysterious in many ways, but we know that the two communicate. So no doubt this man is broken emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. His, his woundedness is much deeper than his physical situation. And the desperation of this man's condition brings the healing of Jesus into relief. The man's yesterday cast a dark shadow over his entire future before he met Jesus. And so in verse 6, Jesus asked this man a question. Take a look. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? That might seem like an obvious question to you. Of course I want to be healed. But here's the thing. An Eastern beggar could often lose a good living by being healed. Cure, it has its implications. 
And breaking into a new way of life can be overwhelming and daunting and and even excruciating when your whole life and identity are built around your brokenness. When you don't know who you are apart from your brokenness. This is who I am. How often are we hearing identity statements that are organized around brokenness? And people lack the the imagination to, to, to think about who they could become if Jesus were to get a hold of their life. If Jesus were to lay out his healing on them. That's why it's hard. And that's why Jesus asked the man the question, do you want to be healed? But listen, this question from Jesus echoes down to each and every one of us today. Do you want to be healed? Think about the brokenness in your life. Think about the things that got you in a chokehold. Think about the things that have caused you to make bad decisions, the things that you just feel, you, ah, they're evidence of the fall in your life. Do you want to be healed? Do you? It can be a scary prospect. When Jesus asks somebody with affluenza, do you want to be healed? Because money can feel so much safer because it gives us a sense of control over our life's outcomes. It can be scary when Jesus asks a political idolater, do you want to be healed? Because losing the acceptance of the tribe lets you know that in your pursuit of truth, you're likely to get a target on your back. Cynicism can feel so much safer than healing because I can't have my hopes and dreams dashed if I don't have any. I can't be disappointed by people if I have super low expectations of them. My marital status can be a form of paralysis. I can feel stuck inside of a broken marriage, or I can feel stuck waiting for a marriage that isn't coming. Paralysis, feeling helpless, stuck in the pain. Emotional and psychological paralysis can become an emotional attachment. It can be hard to hear this question from Jesus when you're caught in a mentality that says, I don't know who I am apart from this brokenness. It's defined me for so long. Jesus is asking you, do you want to be healed, friends? What's your answer? Do you present all the reasons why it won't work? Why it's not possible? Are you paralyzed by the thought of trusting Jesus and leaving the old identity and the old ways that have actually worsened your sickness? Are you stuck rehearsing the old script because you think that this is the only role you can play? Jesus is offering you a new script. He's offering you the opportunity to become a character in an altogether better kind of story. We're going to get to that in the last sermon of the series. We all have to face this question, and guess what? It implies that we are not well. For Jesus to ask us, do you want to be healed, implies we're not well. So we need more from the Lord and from the Christian faith than a little pick-me-up. We need more than just to turn over a new leaf, because it'll be jacked up on the other side too. We need more than a tune-up. We need more than a pick-me-up. We need resurrection. And the good news is this is precisely what Jesus has to offer. To put it in the words of Herman Melville, quote, Heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head 
and sadly need mending. And though we're often out of touch with our deep need, the man in our text knew his condition. He knew his desperation. He knew his need for healing. And because he knew his need, he actually found his help. John is putting the question to you. Do you know your condition and your need for mercy and healing? Do you? Now, when Jesus asked the man, do you want to be well? Take a look at verse 7 at the man's response. The man's answer is interesting for a number of reasons. He says, sir, I have no one. Let's stop there. Evidently, the man was crushed by the despair of loneliness. And there are two possibilities. The first possibility is that the man's entire family died, so he had no one left to care for him. The other possibility, the more likely scenario, is that they gave up on him. He was too far gone, too broken, too needy, too helpless. They could not continue to sustain their care for him. So they abandoned him and left him to himself. And that's why he has no one. They confirmed his hopelessness. But do you notice what he's doing here? I want you to pay careful attention here. Look at what he does. Look at the text. He tells Jesus the solution. I just need you to help me execute my plan for healing, Jesus. If you could just help me get in that pool over there, I know what I need. So if you would kindly get on board with my agenda, I can be made well. Does that sound familiar? I got this figured out. Just get on board with my plan, Jesus, because I know how to heal me better than you know how to heal me. The man's reply defines what he wants Jesus to be for him. The man wants Jesus as a pool boy. We want to redefine Jesus and adjust him to our agendas, which is why we often end up frustrated with God and mad at him. Our complaints about God often boil down to this. I'm mad at God because he's choosing his agenda over mine. I'm mad at God because he won't get on board with my agenda. Now, here's, here's, what, here's what we fail to account for in that thinking. Our agenda is what got us sick in the first place. And his agenda is the only agenda that can result in our healing. So which plan do you want? Would you rather be in control until the car goes off the cliff? Or would you rather get out of the driver's seat and give Jesus the keys? Which is it? You can't have it both ways. We come to Jesus. Listen to me. We come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, this is who I want you to be for me. And Jesus says, in your current thinking, I may not be what you want me to be, but I am who you need me to be. Who I want Jesus to be and who I need Jesus to be are often worlds apart. But remember, Jesus is the Lord. He won't be edited. This man is narrowly concerned with his own situation. What he doesn't realize is that Jesus is concerned with healing that extends beyond this man's life. He has bigger plans for greater good than this man ever had concocted. This man had plans for his own selfish well-being. Jesus saw that man plus how many more. In response to the man, Jesus essentially says, I'm not a part of your plan. You're a part of mine because you are not on the throne. I am. We see here that Jesus wanted to heal what was really broken in the man's life. And you know what the good news is for you this morning? He still wants to heal what's broken in our lives. 
Which brings us to our second point, receiving healing mercy. Now, Jesus, Jesus shows the man that he doesn't need somebody to get him in the pool. He needs somebody who can replace the pool. He needs somebody to render the pool obsolete. He needs somebody with more than a physical remedy. He has so many needs. He's buried in hopelessness and defeat plagues his every move. He has so much pain and rejection buried within, but through the mercy of Jesus. Healing came to him in a way that was completely unexpected. It came at the word of Jesus. Jesus speaks over 38 years of brokenness. Jesus speaks over 38 years of disappointment. Jesus speaks over 38 years of rejection and loneliness. And the word he speaks is a powerful word. It's an effectual word. It's a healing word. Jesus calls the man to rise up, take up his mat, and walk. Three commands expressing the healing power and authority of Jesus. Jesus essentially says the man, to the man, forget this pool. I'm the great physician. Forget the myth of Bethesda. I'm the savior of the world. And he's saying the same to us today. It doesn't matter how long you've had this condition. How long you've been caught up in this situation? How long you have felt rejected? How long you have felt lonely? How long you have been struggling? Jesus is capable of speaking over your brokenness, speaking over your condition, and bringing immediate healing. He's also worthy of your trust in the timing of when he does it. What, what Jesus is showing the man Listen, what we need to see today is that you, when Jesus speaks, you don't need a second opinion. Because when, when you come to Jesus, you're, you don't need a second opinion because you're coming to the second Adam, who is also the second member of the Trinity. He is God. You don't need a second opinion from him. The kind of God who specifically came for those who are sick, Jesus finds him. And if you look at verse 14, check it out. If you look at verse 14, you see something. Like any good physician, if you acquire a sickness because of a certain practice and your physician prescribes treatment and brings healing to you, any good physician is going to tell you not to repeat the things that made you unhealthy in the first place. And Jesus warns the man away from the sin that caused his condition in the first place because he truly cares about our holistic flourishing. What good would it be for Jesus to heal this man's physical body and not heal his heart? That would be an incomplete healing, and Jesus isn't in that business. He is an all-the-way Savior. Jesus shows us the connection between healing and moral transformation. We are healed for holiness. And I want to give a word to anyone out there who experiences chronic pain or suffering, enduring sickness. Sometimes physical pain and suffering are God's means of awakening you to your deeper need of healing. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his book, The Problem of Pain. He said, and I quote, The human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as all seems to be well with it. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In other words, Jesus wants to disabuse you 
of the healing myths so that he can give you true healing. But sometimes the treatment he prescribes is painful. I want you to let your physical pains lead you to the deeper needs that you have and ask the Lord to meet you in that. Sustain your hope by going back to the Psalter and seeing the saints of old. If you, if you have chronic pain, you need to know you're in good company. You're in good company with the saints. There are many who have suffered that kind of, of, of experience and yet have maintained their hope in the Lord because the, the old school cats used to call them golden afflictions that lead me to Jesus. Anything that leads me to Jesus is a golden affliction. That's a good mentality to take on when it comes to our pain. The paraplegic man's life was transformed in this very way. Through his chronic physical pain, he meets the Lord of mercy in the house of mercy. I want, I want to close with this. There was a soldier who was returning from the Vietnam War who had been badly wounded. His, his body was wrecked with wounds. He no longer looked the same. This man was completely physically broken. He lost limbs. His face was marred and disfigured. He was no longer handsome. And the man wrote home to his parents in East Texas. And he said to them, Mom and Dad, I'm coming home. But I'm badly injured. And I don't look anything like what you remember me looking like. And I would understand if you didn't want to see me again. So let's work it like this. When I come home, I'll be taking the train. And if you want me to come home, hang a yellow ribbon in the oak tree in the field by the train station. And if I see that yellow ribbon, I'll know that you want me to come home. But if there is no yellow ribbon, I'll understand and I'll keep going. And you can imagine how the man's heart was moved when the train came around the bend and he saw that oak tree covered with yellow ribbons and he saw the whole train station covered with yellow ribbons and even the train conductor was covered from head to toe with yellow ribbons. It was the good news that no amount of brokenness made him unwanted. His parents loved him, even in his woundedness. And the good news of the gospel is that even though we have been paralyzed by sin and failure, even though we've been wounded by life, even though we've done so much to wreck our own lives, God opens his arms of healing mercy to you and I. But the good news gets even better because it's not a yellow ribbon that hangs up to show us that the Lord welcomes us back. It's his own son hanging on the tree to show us that he wants us back, that he wants to heal us, that he wants to restore us, that he is for us, that he loves us. This is the good news of the gospel. And if you put that promise, that truth, that reality up against the empty promises of the world, it makes everything clear about your choice. There is no healing like gospel healing. There is no physician like the great physician. There is no life like there is in Jesus. That leaves us with a choice. Let me ask you, what does it mean to you 
that the almighty God was willing to wound his son so that he could heal you. If you have trust issues with God this morning, I want to ask you, what does that indicate to you about the trustworthiness of God? If someone would do that for you, how must they care for you? How much must they long for your flourishing? How much must they want you back? How much must they want to use you and bless you and keep you and make their face shine on you and be gracious to you? That is why the gospel is good news, because it gives true healing. Jesus faced the paralyzing wrath of God so that he could speak over us. Rise up, pick up your mat, and walk. Will you hear his voice today? Will you? Will you give up the healing myths? Will you recognize the placebos of our culture for what they are? By faith alone in Christ alone, you will find true healing. So take Jesus at his word today. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.